I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, as we make our way through this book, considering uh, the story of Joseph, uh, we resume now uh, to hear about his father and brothers. And uh, so for the uh, reading of God's word today, I'd like to read to us the entire chapter, Genesis chapter 42. So let us give ear once again to the reading of God's word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. 
Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would assure us of the gospel, that you would build us up into the image of Christ. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, last week we saw Joseph go from the pit to the palace as he was brought before the throne of Pharaoh, the Lord of the land, to interpret his dream. And, as, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, Joseph was able to accurately interpret the dreams and to predict what the Lord was going to do in the near future. He would send seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph, being guided by the Holy Spirit with the wisdom and insight he was given, was able to offer advice to Pharaoh to save up grain during the years of plenty so that there would be a reserve during the years of want. And we saw last week that he did just that, being put in, in, in command over all things, Pharaoh uh, elevating Joseph to the second in command over all of Egypt. He went throughout the land stockpiling grain, uh, which was abundant as the sand of the seashore. And good thing, because as we saw at the end of the passage, the famine was not limited to Egypt itself, but it, was, uh, it had spread throughout all the known earth of the time. And so we saw at the end of chapter 41 that people from all around the world began coming to Egypt as they learned that there was grain down in Egypt. And that really sets the stage for the beginning of our passage as we shift scenes now back into the land of Canaan and we hear about Jacob and his sons as they are running out of food. And Jacob gets word that there is, in fact, grain down in Egypt. You see, the Lord uh, sent a worldwide famine in order to deal with one family. 
That was his primary goal, was to reunite this family that had been estranged, this family that had been divided by sin. You see, the Lord had much greater things in mind with this family. This family needed much more than just grain to survive, but they needed healing. They needed repentance. They needed forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's what we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. For in the same way that the story of Joseph took, pl- took place in three, sen- three scenes, with him in Potiphar's house, with him in the, in the prison, and then in the palace, so also the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers and, and him being reunited with this whole family will take place in three scenes. And this is the first of the three scenes. Which begins in verse 1 with Jacob learning, hearing, uh, literally seeing that there is grain in the land of Egypt. You see here, uh, although old, well advanced in years, Jacob is clearly still the one in charge of his household as he barks orders at his sons, who by this time are all grown men. You got to appreciate what he says. Why do you stand around looking at each other? Go do something. Go down to Egypt and buy grain so that we will live and not die. You see, the stakes are very high at this point. The covenant community is in in risk of, of perishing. It is a matter of life and of death. And Egypt was always a reliable resource for grain with the with the Nile River. It would always have an abundance of food. Well, this time. It was only because of Jacob's son, whom he presumed to be dead. It was only because of that son that they will actually be able to survive. And so Jacob sends his sons, and yet we are told in verse 4 that he did not send Benjamin. Benjamin, uh, Joseph's full brother, the only other son of Rachel, uh, uh, whom she died giving birth to, clearly at this point has assumed the role of his favorite son. He's replaced Joseph, who is now gone, as the one upon whom his father completely dotes, the son of his old age. And so here we see that Jacob has not forgotten what had happened to Joseph. And here we see this this fear that he has, perhaps even distrust that he has, to send his youngest son together with his older brothers. He doesn't want to repeat whatever had happened before with Joseph. And so he keeps Benjamin home with himself. And so we're told in verse 5 that the sons of Israel, the ten brothers of Joseph, who were directly responsible for him being in Egypt, are the ones who go down first to buy grain in Egypt. And as they make their way down to Egypt, no doubt they began thinking and imagining the fate of their brother 20 years before as they had sold him as a slave, that he had made this journey ahead of them. And and, and perhaps they were wondering what on earth ever became of their brother Joseph. Well, we know what happened to Joseph and we're reminded of his uh, elevation in verse 6 as we're told that he was the governor over the whole land. He was the one directly in control of selling grain to these uh, various uh, uh, groups of people that were coming. And so we read there, uh, since he possessed the supreme power, he was the one to whom his brothers had to go. And we read in verse 6 that they all came and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Unbeknownst to them, they were doing exactly what they said they would never do. 
some 20 years before when Joseph had his dreams where they were, uh, uh, they were collecting grain and they, their sheaves, uh, all the sheaves of the brothers bowed down to Joseph's sheaf. They said, we will never do that to you. And yet here it is. They are bowing to the ground before their brother. And we're told in verse 7 that Joseph was able to recognize his brothers. Even though it had been 20 years, seeing them all together, it would be easy for him to identify his older siblings. And yet we might wonder, how did they not recognize him? Well, keep in mind, it's been 20 years. He, uh, in all likelihood, is presumed dead by all of, all of their brothers. He's also sporting a new look. Remember, he is, uh, he's now uh, assumed the garb and the look of an Egyptian. He's, he's got that Yule Brenner look uh, as he's standing there. And also, he's using a translator, as we are told in verse 23. And even if they did recognize the similarity, even if maybe in the back of their mind they began to think, that guy kind of looks like Joseph. I'm sure that thought was immediately dismissed as they thought there's no way. There's no way that's him. And so Joseph here has the power of knowledge. He knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. And he is able to wisely exploit that knowledge as he begins to institute a series of tests for his brothers in order to see what type of men they are, to see if they've changed, to see if they show remorse. And as Joseph sees his brothers bowing before him, immediately flooding back into his mind, into his memory, are the dreams that he had had some 20 years before of his brothers. The dreams uh, that seemingly would never become fulfilled, even as the dreams of the, of the baker and the cupbearer were fulfilled, even as the dreams of Pharaoh were fulfilled. So here Joseph sees that his dreams were immediately instituted, began to be fulfilled, the moment they sold him as a slave. And now being elevated to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, he sees these dreams, the ones of the sheaves, the ones of the sun, moon, and stars bowing before him. He begins to see these things being fulfilled. And so Joseph, or, uh, so Joseph uh, addresses his brothers, recognizing them. He begins to disguise himself and speaks to them Harshly, we may wonder if Joseph's gruff demeanor and false accusations accusing them of being spies, this may lead us to believe that perhaps he's harboring bitterness against his brothers. As he sees them bow before him, perhaps he, like you and I, would be angry at them and would take advantage of the fact that he is powerful, he has power over them and is seeking payback. That as will become clear in this chapter, as in the chapters to follow, what he is actually doing is testing them. He literally says this, by this you will be tested to see, as we said, what sort of men they were, if they showed remorse, if they would, had changed from their ways. You gotta appreciate the irony when he first accuses them of being spies. They respond by denying that accusation and saying in verse 11, we are honest men. The word here, uh, translated honest could also be translated morally upright or just men. You have to wonder if Joseph had to keep back a laughter. Yeah, we're, we're honest men. We're the type of guys who plot our brother's death and sell him as a slave and then, uh, and then uh, take his coat and, and rip it apart and put animal blood on it and, and deceive our father into thinking that his favorite son is dead. We're honest men. 
Well, clearly, they have to prove this. Joseph knows what type of men they are. He knows their past. But how are they today? One of the ways in which they're trying to convince Joseph that they, in fact, are not slaves, or sorry, spies, is that they say we are all sons of one man. We're all brothers. The fact that all these men are brothers runs counter to that claim that they were spies. After all, what family would risk all of their sons in such a perilous mission? To send an entire group of brothers in, uh, uh, if they were caught, the, the entire family would be wiped out. You see, when they say we are all sons of one man, their statement is truer than they would ever think. For in fact, Joseph is included in that number. And so Joseph, again, presses them with his interrogation, repeating this very same accusation that they are spies. And in so doing, he gets them, he, he gets them to reveal even more information that he wants. They start talking about their father. They start talking about their younger brother. These are all things that, that Joseph desperately wants to hear about. Later on, uh, in chapter 43, Judah will say that he asked earnestly about their father. He seemed to be very curious about him and his younger brother. As, and, and they do just that. In verse 13, as they mention their father, their younger brother, and even Joseph himself, the one brother who they tactfully describe as being no more. Of course, they don't say the, the one we sold as a slave and left for dead. They just say he's no more. Don't, don't talk about him. Don't mention him. And so Joseph here now institutes a test in verse 15. He says, by this you shall be tested. On the surface, this test would be for them to prove that they are not spies, confirming their story that they are all sons of one man, that they have a younger brother. But of course, on a deeper level, Joseph institutes a series of tests to prove their character. And in fact, he will institute three separate tests that all in one way recreate the scenario that had happened previously. And he wants Benjamin, his youngest brother, to come down to Egypt to be sort of a stand-in for Joseph himself to see how they treat Benjamin, to see if they had changed their ways. Well, Joseph uh, institutes this test, and he locks all of his brothers up. Originally, Joseph says that one of them should go and retrieve their brother Benjamin, while the rest would remain in custody, and he locks them all up for three days, giving them just a little taste of their own medicine. Joseph, of course, was a slave and in prison for the better part of 13 years. I think three days wouldn't be too, uh, too difficult. And he turns the screws a little bit on his brothers. He begins to get them to seriously question their decision. And after three days, Joseph brings them back before his presence. And here, he seems to relent a little bit. Previously, it was uh, they would all remain in custody where one of them would go and retrieve Benjamin. But now he turns the tables and he says, only one of you will remain in custody while the rest of you can go return with your provisions to feed your household. So here he's relenting. He's showing mercy. He's showing thoughtfulness and compassion to the covenant community as only one would remain in custody and the rest would be able to bring the provisions to the family and bring their brother back to prove, as he says in verse 19, that they are honest men. Prove it. Quoting the very same words that they had said. And in softening his approach, Joseph, who, keep in mind, is presumed to be an Egyptian, a, a, a pagan, 
He's want, he wants to assure his brothers that he, in fact, is a fair man with the basics, basic sense of right and wrong. That's why he says, I fear God. This idea of, of fearing God in, in the Old Testament is different than what is later on described as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, which Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom, is ultimately a relationship that we have with our covenant God. But in the Old Testament, this idea of the fear of God has to do with, even though you may not have a relationship with God, at the very least, you have a basic sense of right and wrong. This is what Abraham previously had feared was not present in, uh, uh, in, in the city of Gerar with King Abimelech as he tells him, explains to him why he lied about the identity of his wife, saying that she was his sister. He said, because I thought the fear of God was not at all in this place and that they would, they would see my wife and kill me. Of course, Abraham was wrong. There was, in fact, a, a basic sense of right and wrong in, uh, in that city. Uh, he was mistaken into thinking that there was no fear of God. Later on in the book of Exodus, the, the, uh, the Egyptian maidwives, we are told uh, they too, the Egyptian midwives also had a fear of God, and they spared the Hebrew babies, uh, disobeying the command of Pharaoh. And so here Joseph wants to convince his brothers that he is a fair, reasonable judge. He's not going to be capricious. He's not going to kill them uh, uh, if, if they are able to prove that they are who they say they are. And so he says, I fear God. You can trust me. But when the brothers received this word, and assuming that Joseph, who, by the way, is using an interpreter, a translator, is assuming that he cannot understand them, the brothers begin to speak to one another, and for the first time, since the heinous acts that we read some 20 years before, for the first time, they began to express guilt in their conscience. No doubt that trip down to Egypt would have stirred some feelings, and now... They're experiencing all this. They say in, in verse uh, 21, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. You may recall back when they had seized upon Joseph, uh, stripping him of his coat and throwing him in a pit. We read that they, they then sat down and ate, showing how completely callous they were showing not an ounce of remorse, even as, as they heard the cries of their brother screaming for help, they were able to sit down and have a meal. But now they're beginning to realize their guilt and the pangs of their conscience is, is, uh, is distressing them. Even as Joseph was distressed when they threw him in the pit, so now this distress has come upon them. And Reuben, the oldest brother, who you may recall had, had said, well, let's not kill him, let's throw him in the pit. And he had planned later to come and rescue Joseph, only to find that the pit was empty. Reuben here once again tries to assume leadership and yet fails miserably and all that he can summon is basically, and I told you so. I told you not to do it. You see, Joseph, upon hearing and understanding what his brothers were saying, hearing for the first time them express remorse for what they had done, Joseph does not gloat. He does not take pleasure in, in their misery. 
but rather he is overcome by emotion and he has to quickly excuse himself to weep as he hears his brothers express remorse. Regaining his composure, wiping his tears, he goes back in front of his brothers and he begins to speak to them and he takes Simeon and has him bound before their eyes in order for him to be kept in custody until they return. Now, we may wonder at this point, why Simeon? Why have all, the, all ten brothers, why did he choose Simeon to be the one who is kept in custody? Well, keep in mind, he had just heard Reuben, perhaps for the first time, explain that he actually did not participate in him being sold as a slave. It wasn't Reuben's idea. He actually counseled against it. And so perhaps upon learning that information, he chooses not to take Reuben, the oldest brother, but he takes the second oldest brother, Simeon, who also, by the way, has very has blood on his hands after what he and his, uh, his younger brother Levi did to the men of Shechem. And so he takes Simeon, the second oldest, the oldest one who was responsible for him being sold as a slave into Egypt, and he places him in custody. But then he also orders his servants to fill his brother's bags with grain, but also to return every man's money and put it in the mouth of his sack. Now, why did he do this? Some, Some scholars suggest that he didn't want to charge his family for the grain. Others suggest that he was just messing with them. But I think actually Joseph has something else in mind. And here he's instituting the first test. As he has that money placed back in every man's sack, we are reminded of the fact that 20 years prior, his brothers sold him as a slave for 20 shekels of silver. It's the same Hebrew word here. The word translated silver is translated money here. And now they will be faced with a similar choice. Will they take the money and run, leaving Simeon high and dry? Or... Will they return and face the music even though they will appear as thieves since they were somehow able to get away with the grain and their money? That's why they're so terrified in verse 28 and in verse 35 when they learn that all their money had been replaced back in their sacks. They begin to think they're going to think that we're thieves now, not only spies, but also thieves. And so here's the first test. What will they do? Will they take the money and run? Or will they face the music? But upon learning that, uh, upon learning that uh, their money had been placed back, they have an interesting question. As they're making their way back, staying at the lodging place, their first uh, overnight lodging, on their way back to Canaan, they ask a very interesting question at the end of verse 28. What is this that God has done? You see, they recognize here with all of these very strange occurrences, with all of this uh, this distress that has come upon them, they recognize God's fatherly discipline in all these extraordinary events. What is God doing to us right now? Well, they will soon learn that God has much bigger things in mind, that God, in fact, was able to take what they meant for evil and turn it to good for their salvation and the salvation of the whole world. But for now, we see that the Lord is using Joseph's severe mercies to work repentance and faith in their brothers' hearts. He's he's beginning to to work in their hearts so that they show remorse and that they were able to receive the forgiveness that their brother already has 
in his heart for them. But now in verse 29 through 34, they're faced with the difficult task of now convincing their father Jacob to allow Benjamin to accompany them back to Egypt. And it's interesting, as they recount the events, they leave out a few significant details. For example, they they leave out entirely the fact that they had all been confined in prison for three days. And they make Simeon seem more like he's an honored guest of this man rather than being a prisoner. And as the final incentive, they mention the freedom, if they do this, that they will have freedom to trade in the land of Egypt rather than mentioning Joseph's death threat if they were all lying, do this and live. And interestingly, after they they explain, they, they present it, painting the best picture, trying to convince their father to let Benjamin go with them. Interesting, we're not told of Jacob's immediate reaction. First, we're told that they all emptied their bags of grain, only to find that not just one brother, but every single one of the man's money sack was there. And it's only there that we read that they all feared as well as their father. And yet we have to wonder if Jacob's fear was different than the fear of his sons. You see, they were afraid because they they felt like they would be accused of being thieves. But perhaps Jacob has a different fear in mind. This seems awfully suspicious to Jacob. Simeon's absence is made all the more suspicious by the presence of money sacks. Did they sell him as a slave too? You see Jacob's response somewhat irrational response in verse 36 is he says, you have bereaved me. Now, clearly Jacob didn't know what had happened. He didn't know what had happened to Simeon. He didn't know what had happened uh, to Joseph, at least in his mind, he's not convinced. And so what does he do? He blames his sons for the death of both of them. You've bereaved me. You've taken both of these sons away from me. There's no way I'm going to give Benjamin to you. Once again, Reuben tries to assume leadership. The oldest brother steps up and he tries to convince his brother, his, his father to entrust his youngest son with him. And what does he say? You can kill my two sons if I fail. Once again, Reuben fails miserably in trying to assume leadership. What good would that do? What good would it do to, if, if, if somehow harm comes to Benjamin for then Jacob to kill his two grandsons? Reuben's uh, attempt to persuade his father seems to backfire as Jacob becomes even more resolute in not sending Benjamin. There is no way. And sadly, we see Jacob's pity party. As he says, all of this stuff has come upon me. His pity party is further clouded by, once again, the sin of favoritism. Notice what he says about Benjamin. Only one is left. His brother is dead. And now I only have him. It seems once again that Benjamin is his only real son left. All of his other sons who were born through Leah or born through through the handmaidens, uh, they aren't his real sons. Only Benjamin is his real son in his eyes. And And he is also willing to do without Simeon, cutting his loss, writing him off as it were, in order to keep Benjamin safe may wonder, where is his faith at this point? Where is his trust in the protective presence of God who had sworn to him that he would bless him and his offspring, that all of his sons would survive and he would make a mighty nation 
out of him. Where is his trust in God? You see, he's falling back into the sin of favoritism. He's protecting his favorite son at the expense, not only of Simeon, but really at the expense of his whole family. It seems like he's hoping that they could just ride out this famine, that this, this grain supply will be enough to get them through. Well, little does he know that this famine will last seven years, and it won't be long before they're faced with the tough choice of what to do in the next chapter. As we come to the end of our passage, we see a family that is bitterly divided about what to do. They are at loggerheads with one another, the father insisting in his way, uh, uh, holding, to, clinging to his favored son, while the brothers are trying to convince him to send Benjamin along. The brothers, too, are wrestling with a guilty conscience, and, and now, after 20 years, facing the consequences of their actions some 20 years before. They're in a tough dilemma by the end of our passage. And yet we, as the reader and hearers of God's word, we know the bigger story. We know that this is only a test. We know that God is at work here to refine and purify his people, to work faith and repentance in their heart. We know that Joseph is in control, that no harm will come to them, that all things will work together for good, that what they meant for evil, God will turn for ultimately for their salvation. And yet this is a helpful reminder for us as Christians for exactly the type of test that God puts us through. You see, God is in control. And yet many times we, like jo- Joseph's brothers, have to wonder, what on earth is God doing here? Did he, did he uh, take his hand off the wheel? How on earth are these things happening to me? You see, sanctification can be a difficult and painful process, even as we see these men struggle with these tests. But keep in mind, in the same way that Joseph was already elevated to a position of authority, and because of that, there was no way any harm was going to come to them. There was no way that this would not turn out in any other way besides their salvation in a much greater sense we can have confidence in the fact that Christ is glorified, that he has taken our flesh into heaven, and he is there. And if it has happened to him, it most certainly will happen to us. And as Paul told us in Romans 5, if we were united together with him in a death like his, we most certainly will be united together with him in a resurrection like his. So even though we walk through the valley of of the shadow of death, even though we face uncertainty in this life, and God puts us through tests and trials for our faith, we have confidence in the fact, even as Paul said in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May we gain confidence in this as the Lord puts us through trials in this life. May we be confident in the fact that our risen head has already gone on before us to heaven, and we most certainly will join him there as we are glorified together with him through the power of his spirit. Amen.